Good afternoon. Thank you very much. This brings us to the last plenary session of our convention 2017. I'm sure you'll agree with me. It has been quite an exciting convention with a great lineup of speakers and topics. I hope you all enjoyed it. The hall is still full, and thank you very much for staying in your attendance. Just a few announcements. Those that haven't uh, collected parking tickets, they are still available on the ground floor at the registration desk, so get your parking ticket there. The ghetto rope where you are storing your luggage is open until 5 p.m. Please ensure that you collect your baggage before then. Should you wish not to keep your delegate back, kindly drop this in the recycling bin at the registration desk, and this will be distributed to underprivileged school children and a soccer team. Also, in terms of your name tags, you can drop them in there for recycling. Nini's book is available at the following website, www.kr.co.za. That's kr.co.za. We have the pleasure of having Arthur Williams uh, to give us the closing motivational talk for today. This is the fellow that I announced yesterday as coming from Cape Town. Athol is a strategy and award advisor and award-winning author who grew up in Mitchell's Plain in Cape Town. He is currently a graduate student in political philosophy at Oxford University, and his academic background includes political theory at the London School of Economics, corporate finance at the London Business School, and engineering from Vets University. His professional background is in business, mostly in corporate strategy and finance, and the companies he has worked at include Bain and Company, RMB Covest, All Mutual, and Rio Tinto. He has served on a number of boards, including Shalamuka Capital, which is in private equity, the Vets Business School Center for Entrepreneurship, and the MIT Alumni Board. He has founded and co-founded a number of organizations, including Torres Associates, which is in consulting, Torres School of Solutions in Education, and Ready to Rise Youth Literacy. Athol is an author of eight books. He has twice been awarded the Salt Black European Union Poetry Award, was runner-up for a South African Literary Award in 2016, and was a winner of the Oxford University's Parallel Universe Poetry Prize. Let's give us all a round of applause as it comes to stage. Short this life is, just one I've got. Finite in tenure, whether I like it or not. Death is embracing fear, replacing dreams with I cannot. Life is taking a new step, having a shot. I will do the impossible. I will change the world. I'll give hope to a despairing nation. I'll give bread to a starving girl. I'll break all the records. I'll do what's never been done. I'll give and no love. I'll be a billionaire of fun. You can whip me with your words. You can bash me with your lies. You can chain me to the ground with your rules. You can stab me with your eyes. I'll forgive all personal harm. I'll ignore all acts of mean. But I will not forgive obstruction of my purpose and dream, for I am a superman. 
I'm a king. I will not just lie down. I will get up and take the wing. I will rise up as sure as the sun, as sure as the springbok, I will run. As sure as the eagle, I will fly. Because I choose to live until I die. What will you do with this day, this hour, this minute? Will you fill it with dull and fear, or will you live it? I will not tolerate any foe, no matter weapon or munition, especially if that foe is within me in the form of fear or lack of ambition. Short this life is, just one I've got, finite in tenure, whether I like it or not. As sure as the eagle, I will fly, because I choose, I choose to live until I die. Thank you so much. The poem's um, called One Finite Life, um, and it's um, from my most recent book um, of poetry called Invitation. Now, I'm obviously not a professional, you can tell I'm not a professional uh, motivational speaker because I don't have the big shiny white teeth. Um, I haven't got the trim sort of physique. I haven't got the tailored suit, right? So clearly you guys are a budget constraint, and so you've got me instead. <laughs> so for future planning, please you know, consider this. Um, there are a few themes I want to talk about. The one is talking about life, and I think for actuaries, it's something you guys think about a bit. I'm going to talk, I'm going to talk about possibility, not probability, possibility. <laughs> and then by the magical power of addition, I'm going to talk about a life of possibility. Um, and then I want to talk about stories. And I'm not going to talk about positive stories that our ruling party wants to talk about. Um, we'll talk about other stories. When I set out to be a poet, I thought and imagined I'd write these books and they'll be, you know, everywhere I'll walk in the streets and I'll see people poring over these great poems and analyzing them and their lives being moved profoundly by these poems. And I've written four books and I've sold 400 copies. Not of each, 400 in total, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then I wrote four children's stories and 80,000 of these books are out there being read. So clearly my intellect and storytelling is more appropriate for an eight-year-old than for you guys, so we're not off to a good start. But I love this idea of telling stories. And I think, I think one of the things we haven't done very well in South Africa is tell our stories, because that's where we meet each other. Let me tell you about my story, my hope, my fear, the way I grew up. Let me hear your story, and that's where we get to meet each other. So I definitely want to be talking about stories. So in the title of the, of the talk was Life of Possibility, Me, You, Us. So I'm going to talk about me and tell you a bit about my story and my story of possibility. Then perhaps challenge you with a few ideas about your story of possibility. And then close out with thinking about us, our story of possibility. In this poem, One Finite Life, I describe this idea of, of life, and, it, and that's the lines up there on the, on the slide. Short this life is, just one I've got. I don't know if you guys have seen these movies. You see these movies where someone says, you know, someone discovers they've got three months to live or six months to live, and they run out and do all the things they always wanted to do. And I always think, why wait? Why wait till I know I've got three months to live or six months to live and then go and do all these things? Why not do them now? And if we kind of have this idea that we are infinite beings and we're immortal, we're going to live forever, then we keep, we'll keep deferring those things and do them at another time. If you, if you sort of let it sink in this idea that says, my life, my time here is limited, it's finite, whether I like it or not, you begin to then see your time not as 
just time, you know, hours passing, but fractions of life passing. And so this idea of life of possibility says, I've got this limited time, what am I going to do with it? The poem also makes quite a bold statement about life and death. So it says, what do, you, know, you, you might be alive, but you're not living if you are substituting your dreams with, with, with failure or with fear, right? I believe there's a big part of us that's the sum of our memories and our dreams. The sum of our memories and our dreams. So for me, dreams are these powerful things that kind of give us motivation in our lives, give us, give us power in our lives. And so when we substitute that with I cannot, with fear, I think we're giving up something of who we are. Life then is taking a new step, having a shot. Being alive and says, I will create, I will innovate, I'll take risk, I'll do things, I'll do new things. Let's talk about possibility. So if that's what life is. The poem talked about, I will do the impossible, I will change the world. Now you'd be, I'd understand if you think that's a bit delusional, right? It's a bit like a Chelsea soccer supporter thinking they can win the league. Um, <laughs> We respect people who are delusional. Um, I'll break all the records. I'll do what's never been done, right? Massively delusional. But I'll guarantee you, people like yourselves who've been successful, anyone who's done anything successful, at some point has this vision of, of I can do this impossible, I'm invincible, right? I firmly believe when Wade for Nikkei st starts at the, the start of the 200 meters, he's not kind of thinking that, oh, I'll give it my best, I'll sort of try, maybe I'll do okay. He actually believes he can do it. He believes he can win this race. He believes he can break the record. And so this resonates with you, this idea of possibility. It says, I live this life of possibility because I believe I can do these things. I believe I can break the record. I believe I can do things that have never been done. I mean, after all, that is a definition of creativity. That is a definition of innovation. So what do I mean by, by possibility? I'm talking about the idea of a future-orientated outlook on life. Rather than sort of bemoaning the past, Right? It's a future orientation. I'm talking about this belief that it can happen. Right? And I put in brackets a justified belief because often I'm trying to avoid the delusional view of it can happen. Because no matter how I try, I'm not going to be a great ballerina. And I've, I've tried. <laughs> so there's got to be some justified belief of it can happen. Right? So just think about it for a second. The toughest project you're working on right now, the biggest challenge you've got in your business, you've got in your personal life, you've got in your career, if you can think, it can happen. It seems so impossible right now, but I believe it can happen. It changes all of your energy. It changes how you go to, go to work each day. It changes how you get up each day. So you've got to believe, living a life of possibility, in my mind, means I've got to believe it can happen to me. Why not me? Right? Why not you? Um, every year at, um, every, every four years at the Olympics, someone wins the gold medal in 200 meters, right? So why not wait for Nikkei? Every year someone wins the Nobel Prize in literature, or in economics, why not you, if that's a passion of yours? Every year someone wins the Two Oceans Marathon, if that's your thing, why not you? And so this idea of, <laughs> it's clearly mine, you know, I've got ambition. Um, but why not you, right? And so it is this hopeful outlook that says, I am where I am, and that's kind of you know, a function of my history. I'm part, I'm, some of my memories and my dreams, so my memories matter. My culture matters, my history matters, it's who I am, it defines part of who I am, but I'm also my, my, my dreams, right? And we often ignore this part of, of who we are. So, in my magical summation, this life of, 
possibility is this hopeful, positive attitude and, and approach. It's open rather than constrained. How do you think about your life? I think you know, the HSRC reported that 60% of South Africans would describe living in a state of fear. We fear for our families, we fear for our, cho for our children, we fear losing our jobs, we fear what's going to happen to our country, we fear what's going to happen to our interest rates, our exchange rate. So are we living closed, constrained lives, or are we living these open lives of possibility? Because you know you make very different investment decisions, you make very different decisions if you're living a closed life dominated by fear, which is the next point around courage, living a life of courage rather than fear. And then, as I said earlier, it's just like full with innovation, with creativity. There's an amazing thing that happens when we create. And I'm not just talking about creating you know, a painting or a sculpture, right? Even you know, building a wall, a bricklayer building a wall is creating something. There's something, there's a human impulse that says we want to create new things, we want to create new, new possibility. And so we come alive when we are creating. And so I'll talk a bit about my story of, of um, innovation in a second, um, oh, sorry, possibility. But these things that block our, our, our path, right? So we can talk about this idea of possibility, but for some reason, we don't all live at our dreams. Because all these big things that sort of block our, our paths. And there's a picture of a fat guy pushing a big rock. Um, <laughs> and so there are boulders that, that block our path. And until we acknowledge the existence of these boulders and deal with these boulders, there's a good chance we'll keep being stuck where we are. I want to present to you idea, three ideas of what these boulders could be. Right? So one idea is, there are boulders you might just be born into. Right? We're all born into a circumstance. We're all born with a narrative. We're all born with a story. If you're born in a war-torn country, you've got a bunch of boulders you could push out the way before you can live a life of meaning. If you're born with a disability, if you're born into a dysfunctional family, if you're born a black person in apartheid, if you're born gay, lesbian in, in environments where that's not accepted, if you're born wanting to be an actuary, you know, um, <laughs> uh, sorry, sorry. So we all have these boulders we've got to push, right? And so until you acknowledge that I've got a boulder that I'm not dealing with, it's going to keep, keep me back, it's going to keep being a problem for me, and I'm not pushing it out of the way. So one is boulders we are born with, and this is not a choice, right? I'm born with this disability, I've got to deal with it. Secondly, are boulders that appear along the way. So there you are, happily going about your life, career is going well, everything's going fantastically well, and then a loved one dies, or you contract a disease, or you're in a car accident, or you get laid off from your job, or Arsenal wins the league, or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> mad things happen along the way that just throws you off your path, right? Um, and again, there you are, if you, if you suddenly find yourself doing the same things you're always doing, not dealing with this new blockage in your way, you end up being stuck. So the second boulder I propose we might have to deal with is a boulder that appears along the way. The third boulder I propose is a boulder we might choose to push. Now we're back into sort of delusional territory, right? Why would you choose to push a boulder? But it might be a case where you come to the proverbial fork in the road, and the one path is a nice easy downhill route, but in the second way, there's a sort of really rough path with a massive boulder there. And you might choose that path because that's the path that leads to whatever your dream might be, whatever you feel your destiny is. And so there are times when we actually choose to push a boulder. You guys all signed up to go and study actuarial science, so you, know, you, can, you can relate to this. So I'm going to propose these sort of three boulders, and these boulders can be external to yourself, or they could be internal, right? The idea of fear, 
the lack of courage, could be a boulder for you. There's something that you know you're dying to do, something you know you must do, but there's this massive boulder of fear or, of, or it's an external boulder that's in your way. You know you've got to deal with that boulder before you can move forward. Let me tell you a bit about <clears throat> my story and some of the boulders. So, I grew up in Mitchell's Plain, as, as Ranty Sivan introduced me, um, and then went on to, you know, I, I earned five master's degrees from five of the world's top universities. So, there were a few missing in your long list there. Um, <laughs> um, so, believe, trust me, this is part of the story, that's why I'm, I'm sort of laying it out. So, I did his master's at Harvard, at MIT, at Oxford, at London School of Economics, and at London Business School. But I grew up in Mitchell's Plain, right? In the 80s, during all the uprising in the 80s. So if you think about my story, what's the story I was born into? I was born into a society where the education system was designed consciously for me to end up being a manual laborer, right? That was by design. On top of that, for large parts of my high school, it just didn't exist because the schools were closed. So at the age of 15, when I'm saying I want to go to MIT, and I'm going to go to Oxford. Those are my two universities I really, really dreamed about. One to go to MIT and one to go to Oxford. And anyone who knew me when I was young knew this. That is very delusional, right? That is a fantasy. To say I want to go to Oxford and MIT is, is delusional. But at, from the age of 15, I wrote this down and I kept these dream lists. And I kept writing all my dreams. Not how I'm going to get there, but kind of saying, that's where I want to go. And I don't care what's happening around me, that's where I want to go. And what happens when you do that? It changes your outlook. Because while my friends, my peers, when I was 15, 16, were dreaming of playing for their best, their favorite soccer team, or joining, you know, being a rock star, whatever it is they were dreaming of, I was dreaming of going to MIT and Oxford. And what that meant was I needed maths and science in the higher grade, which my school didn't offer, right? So what do you do? I then discovered that at my school, they were offering night classes. So these were classes for working, for working adults. I'd go to school by a day when there was school. I'd come home, have lunch, do my homework, and then go back to school in the evenings to go and learn, just get extra tuition um, that we're giving for, to the working adults. Every, every vacation, every weekend, I'd find extra classes, right? So the idea of wanting this education became my absolute sole focus. The bowls I had to push of dealing with gangsters every day, of being stabbed, of being mugged. I mean, there was one day I came home in my underwear because the gangsters kind of just took all my clothes, right? So those were the bowls you'd push as you're going along the way. I was stabbed in the chest because I wouldn't give a gangster money. All the while still making sure I went to school every day and went to night school every night. When I was 16, I understood that my parents couldn't pay for me to go to university. So I wrote 27 letters to companies. I literally went to the phone book. I didn't know who, who would fund my engineering studies. I went to the phone book and just wrote letters, 27 letters, saying, please, will you fund my studies? And eventually Anglo-American funded my studies for me to go to WITS, where I did uh, mechanical engineering. So, one of the first people in my family, my community, my broader family, and many of us can relate to these sort of stories of someone going to, going to study for the first time. I didn't know a single engineer, right? So I couldn't relate to what this life might be. But I read about it in an encyclopedia. That's where I, my reading was. Right? My father had a set of encyclopedias and a dictionary. And that was my reading when I grew up. I had no children's books. But I understood this idea of design, of engineering, and that's what I wanted to do. So I ended up going to WITS to do engineering. And, and Anglo-American funded this program as sort of a, a bridging year. So in 1988, I did this bridging year before doing actual first year. 
In April of, of, the first, of this bridging year, I needed to go to Rudaput to go and do some practical training as part of the engineering training. And someone explained to me how to get a bus to Rudaput. In those days, those of you from, from the area would know that there was white and blue buses. Um, and so in the corner of Jarrison and Yale Road, someone told me, wait there, this blue and white bus will come, Rudaput will be big on it, and you take that bus to Rudaput. <coughs> so I waited, dressed in my best clothes, my first day of work, right, sort of almost, you know, I can call myself an engineering student. And I get into the bus, and I sort of hand, hand over my, my fare to the driver. And he says, I can't get on the bus. So I go, that's kind of confusing. So the, the person told me, Rudaput bus. I checked it was a Rudaput bus. Um, and he says, no, I can't get on the bus. So I'm confused. So I'm looking around the bus, and suddenly it, it dawns on me that everyone in the bus is white. The bus driver's white. Everyone in the bus is white. The people behind me annoyed, sort of pushing me forward, are all white. And then I sort of looked back at him. And he looked at me to kind of say, you get it now? Right? Please get off the bus. And I'm telling you, those days the bus is still those steps. Those three steps of walking backwards out that bus were the longest three steps I ever took. And I got off that bus and just sat down on the pavement on the corner of Yale and Jordan Street and cried. Because something inside me broke that day. Right? To, to have worked self, selflessly and, and self-directed in, in a way for all those years to get to engineering. This wasn't just a convenience. This wasn't a thing that was a natural progression in my life. I was going to study at university. Right? I just single-handedly worked to get there. And there I was being told to get off a bus because of my color. And it was the first time apartheid became real to me. Right? Because for me, petty apartheid was often the hardest. It wasn't what the politicians were doing. It was what the ordinary people, you and I, did to each other. That I often think was the hardest. And so, of course, I then dust myself off and found a train and made my way to Rudaput. When I get to Rudaput, I'm told I can't use the toilets because Right? Office staff couldn't use the toilet. I was working in the office, couldn't use the toilets in the office. So every time I go to the toilet, we take a break. I've got to cross Main Reef Road. And those of you who know, sort of three lanes going both directions. I've got to cross Main Reef Road. I mean, you wet yourself the time you get there. Um, <laughs> but I've got to cross the road every time I go to the toilet and then come back. And it's amazing how this was just normal, right? So I'm phoning home telling mom, you know, oh, I'm doing this amazing work, you know, really, oh, I'm this engineer mom, you know, you can be proud of me. Mimi, I can't use the bloody toilets. Um, later that year, um, sort of November of 88, um, got a visit in my apartment from the security police, um, beat my, my roommate and I up really badly. For some reason, we looked like we were suspicious, only two black kids around. And so, you talk about boulders, right? So there I am, just trying to get an education, not do anything radical, just to kind of get through this education, and these boulders keep coming my way. And what I suggest to you is, every time we face these boulders, we've got to make a choice. Because you, got to, you say, why am I pushing this boulder? When I, after the, the, the security police um, had, had um, attacked us, I thought, Miss, give up. Miss, go back home. This clearly isn't the place for me to be, right? And my parents were saying, just come home, right? It's not going to work out. But every time you hit a boulder, you've got to remind yourself of why you're there, right? And so life isn't about the boulder. Life's about the, the dream on the other end of the boulder. But unless we are crystal clear about what the dream is, right, we can fall over at the stage when this boulder hits us. So I get through WITS, I graduated in 1992. My first job is actually in Santon at the head office of the company I work for. I'm a newly graduated engineer, one of the first black mechanical engineers in the country. It's all wonderful. And the first task they give me is to take the, the Christmas cards from the HR director and write down all the people who sent him Christmas cards so he can send a letter to thank them. Right? When I was done with that, because that was really hard, right? I mean, my, my differential calculus really came became useful there. <laughs> I then did the filing, 
and basically became the assistant to the HR director's secretary. Right? I'm, I've finished the engineering degree, I'm doing part-time masters at WITS, and that's what my job was. So I complain, complain, complain. Eventually, they then send me to Broncospreit. So much for complaining, right? You've got to watch what you complain about. <laughs> they send me to Broncospreit in the old Bantustan of Kwandebele, right? Where I must go work there. I can't rent a, a place in Broncospreit because I'm not allowed to rent a place there. So I drive from Joburg to Broncospreit every day to go to work. At work, and this company still exists, life is very simple. In offices are white people, because they're the professionals, and the factory are black people, because they're the factory workers. Now, this dude rocks up. What do they do? Now, they can't put me in the offices because I'm not white, and they can't put me in the factory because I'm an engineer. So they put a Zozo hut in between. <laughs> I mean, that's, we're talking about ingenuity and possibility, right? They put a, a Zozo hut in between and said, sit there. So for a whole year, I'd drive every morning for an hour and a half from Joburg to Broncospreit, sit in a Zozo hut with no air conditioning, do nothing because they wouldn't let me touch anything, and drive back home. Right? How do you motivate yourself? Right? So we're talking about boulders here. And so, you know, this boulder you know, reminds me of Sisyphus, the Greek mythology, where Sisyphus is a king and he's been cursed to push his boulder up a hill all his life. And as he pushes the boulder up the hill, the boulder rolls back down again. And I think that's where character is built. It's fine having the strength and technique to push your boulder, but when the boulder rolls back down, right, for you to go all the way back down again and put your shoulder behind that, that boulder and push again, I think that's where character is built. And at the age of 23, I sat there in my little Zozo hut um, and decided that I was going to try and get out of the country, but I wasn't going to then break my spirit. And so a poem like One Fine at Life that says, you can whip me with your words, you can bash me with your lies, those words are born there, right? They're not just a poem, they become your manifesto. For me, it was a manifesto, and I put it everywhere I could, and saying, everyone I wake up, that's my manifesto. So I'm going to take the shit they're giving me. At 23, I had an ulcer. I was taking Zantac at the age of 23, because I was so frustrated. And yet I'm calling home to my mom, no, mom, doing great work, designing new everything. You know, Boeing's going to fly my plane, I'm designing. And I'm sitting there playing Tetris on my, you know, my old computer. So then I decided I must leave the country. It's the only chance I've got. And I'm reminded of my dream of MIT, right? So I applied to MIT in 1994. Getting to MIT miraculously. Um, I had to lie about a few things that I've got funding, etc. And, and I haven't got funding, so I can't afford to go to MIT. But I apply for a scholarship, and I get awarded the scholarship, but it's a scholarship that dictates which university I can go to. And it's not MIT, right? So the scholarship says, go to some state university in, in, in the US, sort of university number 3000, and I want to go to university number one, right? How big is my dream at the end of this boulder, right? So here's my fork. Fully funded scholarship, flights, everything taken care of, go to university number 3000, or this part of the year where MIT is, but boulder, you know, daggers, crocodiles, everything on this side, right? So at 24, I decided I was going to quit my engineering job, in which I earned 15 times what my father was earning, right? Quit to go to the States, where I've got a company in South Africa to pay for my flight and nothing else. So I arrive in Boston, with not knowing anyone, not having a place to live, no money for fees, no money to pay for, for living expenses. So I live homelessly in Boston. I joined the gym, and so the gym, at least you can shower. I mean, water restrictions in those days, so I didn't shower much. Um, I'd put my bag in the, in the gym locker room, and every day I'd go to lectures um, and go back, go back and sort of find a public place to sleep. I'll sleep in, on couches, I'll sleep in the, in the sort of open areas. Often the, the campus police would come and sort of prod me with a, with a torch, tell me to get up and, and move on somewhere else. And I did this for a while, 
And I, the way I managed to eat was that all these companies came onto MIT to try to recruit students. So I knew there were all these company presentations, and huh, they bring sandwiches, right? So no matter what the presentation was, you know, the sort of investment banking Latin America, I was there right in front, because I knew, I knew there were sandwiches, right? The women's event, there I am, you know? You know? Um, right? I knew there were sandwiches. I developed amazing skill of sort of, you know, walking around and sort of putting sandwiches in your bag, with no one noticing. Um, so if any of you guys are keen on learning that, I'm a pro. But I had to find a way to survive, right? And, and this is the difficulty of, of saying, at some point you're going to say, but surely I'm delusional. Surely this is not the way I should be living. Surely I should just go back home, be the nice compliant little engineer, right? After all, the letters I got from my, my Anglo-American who funded my studies told me I was being ungrateful, right? They paid for my studies after all. Shouldn't I just go home and be this compliant, grateful person because they paid for my studies? And I said to hell with it, right? My dream is the end of that, on the other end of the boulder. I've got to push this boulder. And I got through MIT. Um, eventually, the dean of, of the graduate school sort of heard about this African stealing sandwiches and decided in the interest of sort of public safety, they'll get me into a room. And he then created a scholarship, which was a retrospective scholarship. So each semester, I'll sort of rack up all the bills. And at the end, if I had good enough grades, he'll then pay my, my living expenses and my, and my tuition. Nothing focuses the mind like that kind of incentive, right? Because the downside for me wasn't just getting kicked out of the university, I was being sent back home. So I got through MIT, and then I ended up working at Bain in the US for, for a number of years. I eventually was a partner at Bain, um, working in New York, in Boston, in London, here in Johannesburg. So I'm with that consulting firm, not the other one. Um, <laughs> um, and I, I was head of strategy for Old Mutual for, for a few years. I um, started my own consulting firm. And so things were great, right? Living the life. You kind of say, well, don't you deserve the fruits of your labor? Shouldn't I just enjoy that? And at one point, I was enjoying it so much, I even had six cars. Um, of course, because you need six cars, right? I, mean, I also meant to be a self-respecting, successful person. But I was challenged. I was challenged by the words of Nelson Mandela, who said, for to be free is not merely to live, not merely to cast off your own chains. Right? So to be free is not merely to cast off your own chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. And I paraphrase that to say, if everyone around me isn't free, then I'm not free. So how can I be enjoying this life of indulgence as much as I can justify it by what I've gone through to get it? How could I justify that when I looked around me and saw people suffering? And so in 2010, I, I then quit my, my corporate job. Um, I had this amazing house my wife and I sold. I had a beautiful library of 10,000 books, and that sort of pained me to kind of put that into storage and sell some of it. We sold all the cars, and so we committed ourselves to public service to do two things. The one was literally for me to go all the way back to Mitchell's Plain and say what was it that enabled me, when all the odds were against me, to break out of that cycle of drugs and gangsterism and illiteracy and lack of education. And it was simply simple things like access to books. Right? You wouldn't understand, let's say, children in Mitchell's Plain. There are 45 primary schools in Mitchell's Plain. It's a massive place. There are no school libraries. There are community libraries which no parent in their right mind would have their child walk to because of the danger, right? The children don't have books in their homes. They've never owned a book. And so it became my mission with my wife, and we built this organization I've been going for the last four years, to give children access to books, to get them excited about reading. And that's why I turned from writing poetry and sort of great philosophy to writing children's books, because I wanted to write children's books that could inspire them. You'd be amazed, if you look at the children, your children's books at home, 
the violent stereotypes in there, the racial stereotypes in there, the gender stereotypes in there. Right? And so we want to give children wholesome books, new books. Everyone says to us, what? We'll, we'll collect old books and you can give it to the kids. Why the hell should we give kids old books? Right? So we give the kids brand new books. We cover them. We volunteers cover the books. So the one part of my public service has been around getting children to be able to read and excited about reading. The second part was the social philosophy part of thinking about the structural challenges we face in South Africa. We've got massive, massive structural challenges, and we're stuck. There's a massive boulder in front of us. We're stuck, and we don't know how to deal with this boulder. If we're talking past each other, we're screaming at each other, and not really making any progress. And so that's what set me on this path. I wasn't just trying to collect degrees for, to hang them on my wall because I had a vacant space on my wall. I wanted to honestly say, if I had my 10 years to live, right? If I was 14, I said, okay, if I only live 10 years, let me try and dedicate my life, try and think hard about this issue of how we can really break these structural challenges in South Africa, economic, political, and social, try and move things forward. And so it took me to Harvard for a year, I went to LSE, and I'm now at Oxford, where I'm, also, I'm doing the doctorate at Oxford, also teaching sort of final year PPEs. But it's this idea of wrestling with these questions around how can we begin to move forward with, with structural change. So, that's my story. I, when, I, when, I, when I was 28 years old, I was living in London, my brother came to visit me. And so, of course, by now, I'd been to MIT and all the rest of it, but I hadn't been to Oxford, right? And so we're standing on Broad Street in Oxford, and he gives me a jacket. He goes into the store, buys this Oxford University jacket, and says to me, this is to inspire you to go to Oxford. And so I vow right there and then that I'm never going to wear this jacket until I'm actually a student at Oxford. And so I kept this jacket for 17 years, brand new. Didn't fit me at all. <laughs> um, but in April 2015, I walked over to my brother's house, sweltering hot, with his jacket on, and he just came out of, the, out of his door, and I was sitting at this gate, and he saw me wearing this jacket, and he, and he knew exactly what it meant. And we both sort of just embraced um, and shed tears, because for, for that long, again, I'd held on to this dream of wanting to go to Oxford. So now I'm at Oxford. So the question now is, I've told you a bit about my story of possibility. And I can go on um, with other stories about this, but you're getting the sense of it, right? It's the sense of belief, the sense of, of resilience, this focus on what your dreams are, and saying these boulders will come. Right? It's not about necessarily avoiding the boulder, but how you can deal with the boulder when it does come. So if I turn the question to you, you've heard me talk about these ideas. So what greatness do you aspire to? Right? Now some of you might say, well, yeah, I'm, actually, I'm actually doing pretty well. I've got a great career, I've got a great family, and that's absolutely fine. Um, but there will be some saying, I've had some dreams that I haven't followed. I love going to little primary schools of little kids and ask them about their dreams. Oh, they have amazing dreams, right? They're going to be an astronaut, they're going to cure cancer. Um, and then something happens to us along the way, and we forget those dreams. And we just kind of say, oh, I'll take the job I can get, you know? I'm kind of stuck here, let me stay where I am. And we accept all these burdens of things that hold us back, that douse our dreams, um, and, and we give it up along the way. So for you, you've got to answer, answer that question of what greatness do you aspire to that you're currently not pursuing? And what are the boulders in your way? Because surely there are boulders in your way whether internal or external, there definitely are boulders kind of holding you back. So I suggest these three ideas that I mentioned already around pushing your boulders. I think clarifying our dreams is something we don't like talking about as adults. You know, what are my dreams? Because what if I never achieve them? Right? How embarrassing is that? Right? When I was 15, I wrote my dreams. At 24, I wrote my dreams again. And the dreams kept changing. There were sort of simple things like going to see a Bruce Springsteen concert or going to see a team that's not Chelsea. Right? Um, 
but there were also more significant dreams. And you know, one of the dreams was you know, complete a PhD. I'm doing it now, 30 years later. Um, so what are your dreams? What are these things that, if, if you believe me saying, we are the sum of our memories and dreams? So it's part of who you are, these dreams. What are those dreams? And do you have the self-belief to actually make that happen? And this is amazing. I worked for a private equity firm for a while. And you see entrepreneurs come and present their business plans. And you can tell when they don't believe it, right? How can an investor believe in your business when you yourself don't believe it'll work, right? So unless I've got the self-belief to do these impossible things, no one else will ever believe me. And then lastly, this idea of resilience. When the boulder roll, rolls back down, are you going to sort of give up and say, this is all just too hard? Or are you going to put your shoulder back into that boulder again and push it up the hill again? That's what American psychologists are now calling grit. There's a whole bunch of research coming out um, last year and this year. This is one of, the, one of the traits of looking at successful people. They've got this ability to kind of just deal with disappointment and dust themselves off, um, off and get back up again. So these are sort of three little ideas I've used um, in thinking about my boulders. And you know, there's a little philosophy, sort of a life philosophy I've got called path of opportunity. And it goes like this. It says, I can't plan everything that's going to happen over the next few years. Right? As a strategist, I always wanted to do that because my clients were paying me stupid money for me to do that. Um, and you, know, you might want to kind of do all the analysis, all the risk assessment of saying what's going to happen over the next few years, but you can never know that. But what you can know is a direction to go. Right? If you, want to, you know, if you want to be in business, maybe going to business school is a good first step. If you want to be a Hollywood actor, actor going to Hollywood and kind of being a waitress might be a first good step. The point is, we can often know the direction to go in and then take the first few steps. Because as you take the first few steps, you then learn more things. And so this idea of, I don't know what's around the corner because I'm afraid, right? Sometimes you could actually walk to the corner and then look what's around the corner. So path for opportunity says, just get moving. Get up, don't just sit around, let's actually get moving. Let's talk quickly in, in, in closing our story. So in South Africa, what is our story? And I suggest our story now is, you know, there's anger, there's suffering, there's disrespect, there's division, there's violence, there's corruption, there's inequality, hatred, a whole bunch of stuff. That is our story. Look at the papers, you know, when you, think, when you drive home um, after each day, what are you thinking, right? This is, this is our story. But this isn't a story of possibility in my mind, right? So for me, the story of possibility is one of trust, one of justice, one of respect, one of cohesion, one of pride, one of compassion, one of opportunity. But we don't often use this language in thinking about the future, in thinking about our country. And this is what, what energizes me, because I believe these things are all there for us to, to pursue, but we've got to do something about it, right? The poem said, I'll give hope to a despairing nation, not the president, or the politicians, or my boss. I'll give hope to a despairing nation. I'll give bread to a starving girl, right? So the question around this us story we want to see in South Africa, the story of possibility for ourselves and for everyone else around us is, what must I do? I get this all the time at Reach Arise, um, the, the literacy NGO. Someone say, oh, you know, I want to help, what can I do? Um, and they expect me to say, well, write a check. I said, that's not the answer. Right? We want to go for this easy answer of, kind of writing our checks and, and, and sending off money. Often, we could change something we are doing. Often, what's going to change is something that we're actually benefiting from, that we might have to, that might do. Right? And those are the harder things to kind of deal with. So what must I do? What will I do? Right? And the poem says, I will rise up as sure as the sun, as sure as the springbok, 
It's unfortunate Springbok, talking about Springbok these days. But I, I wrote the poem a long time ago, so <laughs> it's, <laughs> I can't change it now. But, you know, we redeemed ourselves. But I gave this talk a few weeks ago and, and mentioned the Springbok, and people kind of said, no, dude, you've lost credibility. So the animal, sure as the Springbok, I will run, right? So what am I going to do? What are you going to do, right? Not just about your own story, because you've got to deal with the boulders in your story, but you've got to deal with the boulders in our country story as well. And so I look at it as my story, your story, our story, linked. And so I will never have a life of possibility in South Africa if you don't live a life of possibility, and vice versa. For us to, to live together in a society that has some of those words I described, we all are going to live a life of possibility in your design work, in your planning work, in your saving, in your investing, in how you deal with others. This idea of openness, of possibility, I think energizes everyone around us. I think then gives us this possibility of this great society we dream of. And so, in closing, <coughs> I think it's right for you to ask, what will I do? And I always think you're going to start where you are, right? If you're an actuary working for a life company, start doing great things there. Oh, that sounds like a company's... <laughs> Sorry. Um, simple, better, stupid, but I don't know, that's something else. Wherever you are, you can do, do, do amazing things, right? Um, where, where, from where you are, if you're a school teacher, you know, do it with passion. If you're a bricklayer, do a, build amazing walls. And if you'd actually do amazing things. And for me, as a poet and a social philosopher and a corporate strategist, I try and do the best wherever I can. Um, and as a poet, my currency is words. And so as I started with a poem, I'll end with a poem. This one's called These Words. All I have are these words that pour from this scruffy bag, like the scruffy bag that pours the skinny bones of an infant corpse starved of hope. Words trickle down the wrinkled cheeks of a defeated mother who knows too much sun and too much sin and too much sorrow. She knows the rhythm of my words. These words, this mother who cries the cry of the desert, that cry long after the tears, long after the stench, long after the stones are piled in random heaps to remember the organized culling of her meaning. Word after word, bullet after bullet, lie after promise, her tree goes silent, her mountain mute. All I have are these words, no bite of bread or drop of drink or bomb to blast or gun to shoot to take his eye or her eye or my eye, but I, I have these words, these pockets of power upon my lips, lips of limit, but spirit 10,000 suns bright, words that reach high into the sky to catch bullets in flight, words that dig deep into the darkness of hatred to bring light, words that soak into a soul in pain to bring warmness at night. Words that make those who do wrong turn to do what is right. Words that make those with selfish blindness awake and have sight. Words that raises the songs of dignity and silences power and might. Words that turns sand to water in delight. Words that makes old enemies turn and unite. Words that dissolves the lies of us and them, black and white. All I have are these words, but these words walk on water. These words dance across waterfalls and reach into the sky to bring the sun back into view and raises the fallen school and fallen bridge and fallen people with their fallen hope. All I have are these words that pulse from these lips with every living beat, that beat, heartbeat, that makes us one. When that mother cries, we all cry, for being one is all our spirits know. All I have are these words, which I now offer to you, because all we have 
is each other. Thank you so much. When we opened yesterday, I did promise you that we leave this convention collectively stronger as a profession. I think we have learned a lot over the last two days. Let us keep the lessons alive in us. Arthur, thank you very much for your contribution to our empowerment. And on behalf of the Victoria Society of South Africa, as a token of our appreciation, we'd like to give you a small gift here. Thank you, Rakesh. Thanks very much. We now know of a life of possibilities, and let us go out there and make things happen. In terms of closing announcements, drinks will be served in the lobby, the foyer just outside until six o'clock. Just a reminder, parking tickets are available at reception. The baggage room closes at five o'clock. And the voting should have closed at uh, the app voting for the speaker. Uh, Athol wasn't part of that poll. I'm going to announce the winner just to let you know that you're not part of that poll. The winner <laughs> uh, was decided before that. So the best speaker is voted by the participants through the app is Jeremy Gardner. I don't know if he's still here. Let's just give me a round of applause. There is a certificate for him, so if any of his colleagues are here, they can collect it for him. Then participants uh, on the app, members of the profession, there was some leaderboard. I'm not sure if there are prizes for the person who scored the most points in terms of uh, the comments and the participation that we're making. But I would like to announce the winner, which is Joshem Padayachi. <laughs> the runner-up was Alton Gilbert, and number three, Karabo Murule. Let's also give them a round of applause. I would, I would now like to call upon uh, Peter Withy to come up to close this convention officially. Thank you very much. I think there's just one other housekeeping announcement. Linda Hyde, if you're still around, I think the organizing committee have got, uh, not the organizing, the, the uh, organizers have got your cell phone if you, if you are missing it. Um, Athol, I just want to thank you from myself as well. I think you have pulled together in your challenge to us much of what we have spoken about throughout this convention. So thank you for that, even though you perhaps didn't know that what you have done, I think, in my mind, has pulled together uh, much of what we've spoken about. I have the pleasure at the end of the, of the, the, the convention 
uh, to thank a few people. I'm going to start off by one that uh, I'm thanking personally, which is Ranti. I think, Ranti, thank you so much for chairing uh, the convention. I think uh, you've done a, a fabulous job, and um, uh, we really appreciate your, your contribution. So thank you very much, Ranti, for that. An event like this doesn't happen uh, just by magic. There is a lot of work that goes behind the scenes. And even though I know they're probably going to hate me, I'm going to ask them to come up to the stage. So will the 2017 organizing committee members come and join me on stage here? So Guy Channels as chair, Chris Anastadius, Shashmi Chowdhury, Rian Kutsia, Michael Curtis, Abu Lela Ghazi, Marseille Marks, Mike McDougall, Yageshri Moodley, Evelyn Olvachen, and Tian Zhang. If you're here, please will you come and join us on the stage so we can thank you. I just want to thank these folk personally. I've been on an organizing committee of, of conventions and congresses, and it is an awful lot of work. It's a lot of commitment and a lot of time. So guys, thank you very much. And once again, a great convention. <laughs> the other group that without, without whom the Congress doesn't happen are our sponsors. I don't know if we have a sponsor slide, but I'll mention those that I have on the back of the, uh, the, the convention brochure. Our gold sponsor, MMI Holdings, bronze sponsors, Genry, Hanover Re, RGA, and SCORE. Satellite coffee bars, kept us going all the day, MMI Holdings, QED, RGA, and TransUnion, and for the convention bag, Colorfield. Thank you very much for your contribution. I think your contributions as sponsors make these events happen. So the last thank you I have is to all of you for attending and participating. And I now declare this convention closed. See you in Cape Town in a year's time. And hopefully by that time, you won't have to bring your own water with you. Thank you very much. <laughs>